A lot of scholars, when they talk about Mark, they, they often divide it about chapter 7, because up to this point, Jesus has really been um, quite hidden in the way that he's talked about himself, and you might have noticed a few times, he's been quite reluctant to let people know who he is. And he's, he's told people, don't say anything and don't tell anyone, and that kind of thing. And then after chapter 8, we'll see when we come back in September, he starts becoming a lot more open and talks about the Son of Man must suffer and die and be handed over to the Gentiles and then raise again on the third day. And the whole thing just starts building toward Jerusalem, toward the Passion, toward the Cross, and just gains this real sense of momentum. So we'll come back in uh, September and have a look at that. But here is this uh, wonderful little story at the end of Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is back down in this region of, uh, which is called the Decapolis. And if you look in verse 31 of chapter 7, it says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. If you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at the, Jesus healing the man with a legion of demons, we talked about how this region, the Decapolis, over the, uh, the far side of the Sea of Galilee, it was, a, it was the non-Jewish territories. It was the land you didn't go into if you were a good Jew. You didn't venture there. It was pagan soil. It was foreign territory, unsafe, unclean, and all of that. And Jesus quite deliberately makes sure that his voyage, his journey, gets him right in the center of the action in the Decapolis. He's not just staying to the rugged, uh, to, to the beaten track. He's veering into territory that would have raised a lot of eyebrows and made people wonder, what's he doing? Verse 32, there were some people brought to him. There's some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Again, if you think back to Mark, it's an interesting contrast to the reception that Jesus got last time. He was in the Decapolis. If you remember, he healed this man with the legion of demons. And when the crowd came and checked out what Jesus had done, what was their reaction? They begged him to go. They were completely terrified, couldn't understand what had happened. And the crowd said, no, leave, leave the region. Sent Jesus away. And here Jesus comes back and the crowd's begging again, but this time not for him to go away, but for him to heal. It's as if they've had a complete change of heart. And, and while we don't really quite know what to put that down to, if you remember the very end of that story we looked at with this man who had been healed by the legion of demons, what did Jesus tell him? He said, you go and you tell what the Lord has done for you. You take this message back to the cities of the Decapolis. And here you have Jesus next time he's in the region, suddenly everybody knows about him. Suddenly everybody's heard about him and they're not terrified anymore. Rather, they're bringing disabled people and laying them in front of Jesus and begging for him to heal. And one possible scenario, which is quite likely, is that man was such a good witness and such a good testimony to Jesus that he's been spreading the good word, and now these people are much more favorable to Jesus in their midst. He sort of became the first missionary to the Gentiles. And so Jesus has a captive and ready audience. So they bring him this man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Uh, it, it's pretty likely that this guy hadn't always been mute and deaf, uh, because when Jesus does heal him, the Bible says that he's able suddenly to speak plainly. He's got a sense of language. He knows what it is to speak. And so he probably wasn't born without speech and without hearing. But nevertheless, somewhere along the way, he's probably suffered some injury, which has resulted in him becoming deaf. And although he can make some sort of sounds, he's obviously got a speech impediment that's serious enough that he can't articulate words clearly. He can make some sort of noises, but, but it's a very serious speech impediment and he cannot speak properly. So you imagine what life's got to be like for this guy. Just a world of silence. We don't like silence, do we? Even that pause felt a bit long. 
Uh, you know, a world where you can't express your feelings, you can't express and communicate what's on the inside. In so many ways, he would have been completely isolated from the world around him, cut off from other people. And while he might have mixed and mingled socially, he would have felt so lonely and so lacking in companionship and so unable to be fully human without the use of his hearing and without the full use of his speech. The crowd bring this man to Jesus and they beg him to place his hand on him. It's interesting, they don't even beg Jesus to heal him explicitly, they just beg him to place his hand, knowing what follows when Jesus places his hand on someone. And then what we get here is this intriguing little drama of healing. I think one of the most fascinating accounts of Jesus, one of Jesus' miracles in the Bible, uh, in verse 33. Every little detail here is significant. If you can follow along in your Bible, it's worth just tracking through phrase by phrase. Verse 33, after he took him aside, away from the crowd. Now that's interesting. There was a crowd here. They bring this guy to Jesus, and Jesus deliberately takes this guy away from the crowd. You stack that next to a lot of what takes place today in the name of healing. And it's quite a different scenario. Today there seems to be situations where there's so often a grandstanding type effect. Things are done with maximum publicity, with great uh, hype and spectacle, with the maximum amount of people possible watching. And yet Jesus isn't into showmanship. He's not into doing things with maximum visibility, even though that might have had a positive impact on the crowd and might have led to them believing and being even more amazed, but he deliberately takes this man away from the crowd so that he can interact with him one-on-one. And when he's alone with this man, Jesus does this amazing thing. He puts his fingers into the man's ears. Yes, you heard right. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. What's going on with this? (laughs) At which point the man says, forget it, I'm okay, thanks very much. I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I can handle it. I mean, just imagine though, Jesus gets his fingers, puts it in the guy's ears, gross and then he gets his waxy fingers and he spits on them and puts them on this guy's tongue just try that with your neighbor for just a moment (laughs) let's just bless each other with the (laughs) ministry of Jesus what's going on this is just weird stuff isn't it well I think part of what's happening and there's a lot left to our imagination here it's 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 no embellishment of the story but you, you can't underestimate in this account just the value and significance of physical touch You're looking at a society where there was no disability awareness Sunday. There's no sympathy for disabled people. There's no accommodations and concessions made in society and efforts to try and compensate and to love and to understand. What happens if you have any kind of physical ailment and especially a a long-term disability is you're basically unclean and you're cast out and you're expelled from the community. Not just in Jewish contexts, but probably uh, people like this in the Decapolis would have pronounced this guy cursed by some sort of deity, and he would have been, if not physically cast out, then certainly rejected and ostracized socially and treated as in every way inferior and substandard. These are the kinds of people you don't ever touch. And if possible, you just avoid them and walk across the road if you you come to them. Never have them at a dinner party. And Jesus, time and time and time and time again in the Gospels, makes a point of touching those whom he heals and restores and works miracles in their life. And he does it here. He does it even with people that had leprosy, you know, the the most vile, as it was considered, of, of conditions and diseases. And Jesus just cuts through all of those social and religious and cultural taboos and reaches out, and he touches people. 
He puts a hand on them. And here it's this intimate touching of putting his fingers in this guy's ears and putting his finger on this guy's tongue, symbolizing that God is the one who has come so close that he can touch those who struggle. The God we serve is not a God who stands at a distance, not a God who's far off, but a God who draws near enough to touch. That's how close Jesus wants to be. That's how close God the Father wants to move in on our suffering and our struggles. And so Jesus reaches out and he touches this man in this, in this peculiar and kind of amusing way. And then Jesus looks up to heaven, another significant idea in the sense that he's acknowledging the source of this power that's going to be worked out. Not that God lives up there somewhere, but symbolic of the fact that it's the power of God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to move through Jesus, that the Son never does anything in isolation from the Father and the Spirit. So Jesus looks to the, to the heavens, to the source of this miracle-working power. And then with a deep sigh, what do you think Mark included that? With a deep sigh. It's a detail that seems insignificant until you look at the way that, that word sigh is used elsewhere in the scriptures. Literally, it means to groan. It's a deep groaning. And Paul, as he's writing, picks up this word, and he uses it in, in, in a couple of his letters, in 2 Corinthians and Romans. He uses it to describe the groaning that we experience in the present life for the redemption of our bodies. Isn't that interesting? Paul says we groan as in the pains of childbirth, for the liberation and the redemption of our bodies that's one day going to come when Christ is revealed. And it's like our existence in the present is a type of groaning. There's a good, healthy, wholesome, spiritual type of groaning that we need to learn in the present, which is the groaning for the redemption that's one day going to be wrought when Christ finally returns. And you see when Jesus encounters all kinds of brokenness and symptoms of a corrupt and, and decaying world, it just provokes in him this deep reaction. Same thing when he encounters the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He groans, and it's this repulsion with the effects that sin has wreaked on the world. Not just human rebellion, but all kinds of devastation, sin and, and brokenness and fallenness. And it just, it just, Jesus just is, is so repulsed by it. I think that's part of what this sighing is, just a deep groaning at just the havoc sin has wreaked in this man's life that's just decaying his body and limiting him from what God had originally created all men and women to be. So there's a deep sigh, and then he, he pronounces this word, Ephatha, which uh, sounds a bit like Mufasa, but it's not. It's Ephatha, it's probably Aramaic, and uh, it means be opened. I think part of the reason Mark tells us that he spoke in Aramaic is because you have these miracle workers and witch doctors wandering around, babbling away and healing with all kinds of incantations and gobbledygook. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus spoke coherently. He spoke in his native language. He spoke a word. He asked, be opened, and it was done. There's a direct word. There's an immediate action. And the power is coming from this man, not from some random babbling and vague mysticism. This is the power of God being worked out through Jesus. And as soon as he utters these words, be opened, we're told in verse 35, at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. It's an incredible miracle. And then the most amazing thing about this story is Jesus obviously brings him back to the crowd, and the crowd just go absolutely wild. They love this. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them, presumably the crowd, not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Well, there's probably a bit of tongue-in-cheek in here. 
that Jesus keeps telling them to shut up and they just keep talking and keep talking and keep talking. One commentator that I read says that Jesus, while he's able to calm and, and, and command storms and demons and illnesses, when he tells a crowd to shut up, it falls on deaf ears. You know, the Lord of the universe, able to command storms and expel demons and all this stuff, he tells a crowd, don't talk to anyone, and they just keep talking. There's a little bit of irony in there, I think. And if you're, if you're a student of literature and you love that kind of stuff, look at the, the motif of speech and silence that's going on here. At the beginning, a man who couldn't talk. At the end, a crowd that can't shut up. It's this wonderful little literary technique that Mark's drawing out. This crowd just can't stop talking about what's happened. And they, and they say two uh, phrases here at the end, which is just a great way to round out this whole series. Uh, verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. That kind of sounds like a random thing to say. He's done everything well. Uh, some scholars in here hear an echo of Genesis 1.31, when God the Creator on the sixth day of creation stood back from His work and declared that it was very good. And if we can hear an echo of that, and we can't be certain, but if there's some allusion to that here in Mark, then it confirms this idea that Jesus is going about the work of new creation, that He's actually recreating the world as God originally intended it to be, and even better, that God the Creator created a cosmos, a humanity that was very good, and here now is Jesus recreating all things, renewing all things, and is doing it very well. It's this wonderful motif of creation and new creation going on in there. And in the final words this crowd utters, they say he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And the connection there is unmistakable. This is straight out of Isaiah 35. Uh, if you have a second, uh, if you don't mind putting your finger in Mark chapter 7, flick back to Isaiah 35 for just a minute. This is Isaiah's picture of the future that God's one day going to bring about. Isaiah's picture of when God finally steps on the scene of human history and finally decides to act and finally decides to restore all things and finally brings healing and restoration, what that's going to look like. And it's just rich with imagery, but here in the middle of it is this passage that the crowd and the Decapolis draws on, verse 5 of Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And image after image after image just gets laid on and laid on and laid on of the wonder of the new creation when God finally brings it about, brings back his people from Exodus, brings back his people from exile. And right in the center of that new creation is this idea of physical healing, that it will be a time when bodies are restored, when the lame will walk and the mute will speak and the deaf will hear and the blind will see and there will be health and there will be wholeness and our bodies will be redeemed. There's no mistaking that that's central to Isaiah's vision of what's going to happen when God finally steps onto the stage of human history. And here you have in Mark, and we've seen it so many times already, Jesus coming along and doing exactly that. He's healing. He's making the lame to walk. He's making the mute to speak. He's making the blind to see. He's making the deaf to hear. And in case you hadn't yet connected the dots, Mark connects them for us at the end of chapter 7 by putting these lips on the words of Gentiles straight from Isaiah. 
He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Mark's leading us back to Isaiah 35 and saying that's the image that's now coming about in the work and the ministry of Jesus. That picture is coming true. That future is taking shape. That kingdom is taking form even among us, and it's coming true in and through this person, in and through this man, Jesus of Nazareth. All those things that Isaiah promised you, they're starting to happen. And the astounding thing is here that this comes from the lips of non-Jewish people. Even though Isaiah's future was thought to be for Israel, ethnic Israel, now you have the lips of these unclean pagan Gentiles, like you and I, those of us that aren't Jewish, claiming these words of Isaiah's, claiming the words of Israel's prophets as their own, showing that God's plan for humanity is moving far beyond the boundaries of national ethnic Israel, moving towards all people moving towards all nations, encompassing everybody, everywhere, this incredible movement of healing and restoration and renewal of all things. Okay, well, let's, let's pause there for just a second. It's, um, it's about this point in the story that you hit a bit of a tension between what we're reading here and our experience of life today because we're building this picture of Isaiah's future coming true in the ministry of Jesus, of this incredible work of healing that's coming about. But think for a moment, what does this story say to someone who's struggling with Parkinson's disease? What does this story sound like when it's read by Gareth and Amanda? What does it sound like, what does it mean when it's read by someone with cerebral palsy? or when it's read by Andy and Nikki Bray, who, who Biffy mentioned, wrestling with the loss of a teenage daughter? What does this text mean when it's read by the Bowden family, who this week lost a wife and a mum? Because it's all very well to spout out this lofty rhetoric about Jesus the healer and the incredible things that are happening in and through him, but what does it really say to people that are really struggling and suffering the effects of the devastation of the broken world in which we live every single day, who feel in their bones the effects of disability and disease and even death? It all starts to ring a little bit hollow. And it was a problem, to be honest, that plagued Jesus even in his own ministry. Because behind this story, you have to think, well, this wasn't the only disabled guy in the Decapolis at the time. This wasn't the only guy who was sick and struggling, but as far as we know, well, we could be wrong, but he's the only one that we have an account of this type of healing. Now, Jesus may have healed others, but he certainly didn't heal everybody. There were a lot of people in Palestine at the time that probably stood by and watched Jesus heal other people, and they themselves didn't receive that healing. And even after Jesus died and was raised to life and ascended to heaven, there were still a lot of diseased and disabled and sick and dying people in Palestine. And it seems that it was never Jesus' intention to heal every single person. But this confused some onlookers because what they expected is that when God finally acted and when God finally stepped in and put the world to rights, that it would be this black and white thing, that finally people would be healed, that healing would be universal. This great resurrection age would be complete. God would vindicate his people. He would execute judgment on Israel's enemies and there would be this wonderful age of peace and prosperity and health and harmony. That's what they thought God was going to do. And Jesus comes and he heals one person here and another over here and just a fraction of all those who are suffering are actually healed. 
Because part of what Jesus came to reveal to us is that God's timetable is not ours. And God's plan is not that which Israel had previously expected. God's time frame for bringing about this great age of healing is somewhat different to what everybody had anticipated when they read the Isaiah scroll. And what Jesus came to reveal to us and what, what's verified through the later writings of the apostles is that this great new creation that's breaking in now, this great age of healing which is coming about and is taking shape, no mistake, it's going to happen in two stages. It's going to come about in two phases, kind of like two acts in a Shakespearean drama. There's this two-phased rollout of the new creation. The first of those phases is taking shape right here. You see it in these stories. You see it in these miracles and these healings and exorcisms and nature miracles. It, it culminates on the cross and the empty tomb, the ascension of Jesus, and it continues today. We're in Act 1. And Act 1 is primarily about the beginnings of God's healing for all people and all things. It's the beginnings of this transformation. It's the beginning of this renewal that Isaiah foretold. It's primarily and foundationally about the healing of the fractured relationship you and I have with the God that created us. That's the bedrock healing that God wants to provide for us. The relationship between creator and creature that was severed in the fall and broken by human sin and is marred and tainted by stuff that you and I do in our lives and just the, the, the tarnishing of our nature. This is what Jesus foundationally came to heal for us, to bring renewal, to bring healing in our relationship with our God. And as that healing takes shape, then it bubbles over into other facets of our life. God gives to us to inhabit our very bodies the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, which is referred to in the Bible as the down payment of the age to come, like, like a deposit on a house, the guarantee of that which is going to come down track. The, the Spirit is really the hallmark of the new creation, the sign that new creation is breaking in, and it's just a taste of the future that God has prepared for those who love Him. And as we accept Christ, give our lives to Him, as the relationship between us and God is, is healed, then the Spirit of God begins to push that healing out into every other area of our lives. Begins to extend that healing to our minds, the renewing of how we think. He pushes that healing out to our emotions, the healing of our, our moods and emotions and how we feel, our anxieties and insecurities and depression and rage and anger and lust and all of these things begin to be taken hold of by the healing power of Jesus. And as that happens, that healing work continues to extend out into our motives and our attitudes, the deep thought structures of our lives, and then over into our relationships. It bubbles over into our relationships with friends and, and family, our husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends. And that healing power of Christ, that healing balm of Christ starts to work its way out into our lives. It starts to take hold as we become the vehicles of God's healing for others. It starts to take hold of groups. And hopefully and ideally, even societies, even cultures, and even nations, as God works to redeem and to restore and to put back that which sin has torn apart. All of that is Act 1. That's the act that we're living in now as we receive the healing that Christ purchased for us through the cross and the empty tomb and allow God to work it out in our lives and be His conduits of healing for others, for other individuals and other groups. We're taking hold of the healing that's available to us even now in the present. But we still wait for Act 2. 
And this is so critical because the best is yet to come. And too often, we, we, we want to just collapse it into one big act in the present. But God says, no, there is going to be a day when Christ returns and the trumpet sounds and the, the, the perishable will become imperishable and the mortal will take on immortality, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And when Christ returns, He's going to transform our lowly bodies to become like His glorious body. Philippians 3.20. That's the promise of Act 2. Uh, that was all purchased on the cross. So that's what people ask. Is there, was, there, was there healing in the atonement? Yes, there was. But the key is in understanding how that gets applied. When Jesus died, He died to purchase for you a new heart, a new mind, and a new body. But the full realization of the atonement and of the benefits that have been won for you on the cross await that day when Christ returns and finally renews and restores all things. The great second act that follows the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the act in which we'll receive that full redemption and healing of our bodies for those of us that call Jesus Lord. And so as we learn to live between those times and find our place in this story, there's a couple of extremes that Christians tend to drift towards. One is that for living in Act 1, we can sometimes expect too much. And this, I think, is a weakness of sometimes what goes on today in the name of healing. That we want to try and claim all the promises of Act 2 in Act 1. And we want to try and bring everything forward, leaving nothing to be revealed for when Christ finally returns. But God has said to us, no, there are some things that await the day when Jesus returns to us. And sometimes we can assume or, or, or get ourselves in a place of thinking that if we just pray hard enough, think long enough, fast fervently enough and say the right words, then any kind of healing or any kind of restoration can be absolutely guaranteed to come our way. And what happens is we can end up using our faith as a bargaining chip with God, sometimes even holding God to ransom, that if I've got enough faith, I'm somehow obligating God to do this, to heal that, or to deliver me from that. And we fail to acknowledge God's divine parental prerogative, to grant or to refuse in the present life while we still await Act 2. There is no promise in the Scriptures, friends, of full physical healing in the present life. There is no guarantee of that. Yes, we're welcome to ask for it, but there is no guarantee that in this present act, God promises to renew and restore everyone of everything. What we experience now is the beginnings of transformation. What we experience now are the beginnings of that renewal and that anticipation, that groaning for the day when God finally comes and restores all things. But the other temptation, and maybe this is something that in a church like ours, maybe this is more of a temptation for us, is that we can expect too little in the future, in the, in the present. And somehow we've created a God in our image who's a very docile God, a very domesticated and tame animal who really doesn't get too involved in human affairs and really doesn't intervene too much at all in our lives and really has very little power that he's willing to give us in the future and just simply clips our ticket for heaven and tells us to sit around twiddling our thumbs and trying to behave ourselves until the day when Jesus returns. And this is the way a lot of Christians live their lives. It's kind of like we've, we're those that Paul talked about who have a form of godliness but we're denying its power 
And it seems that many of us have forgotten that the new creation is already here. The kingdom has already come. The Spirit has already been given. And the same Spirit that worked through Jesus to restore the hearing and the speech of this man is the same Spirit that raised Jesus bodily from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. And the same Spirit that dwells among us and within us even now. And so Jesus comes to us in the present as our healer. He comes to us in the present as the one who intends now to begin the renewing and the restoring of all things. And it begins with our relationship with Him and with our Heavenly Father, but He intends to begin bringing about the first fruits of that healing among us even now, just as He was with this man. That just as the power of God broke in in that situation and Jesus did up close in this instance what He intends one day to do for the whole world, so there are times today when God breaks in mightily by His power and gives us this tantalizing glimpse of what the kingdom is one day going to be like. And maybe they're just glimpses, but they, they do happen, and they are among us, and the kingdom is coming, and the new creation is here. And as Christians, we need to get rid of the fear that surrounds the idea of taking hold of the healing power that exists within Jesus Christ. So often we want to deny that, we want to push it aside, we want to intellectualize our faith to the point that we really deny a lot of the power that God wants to, wants to break in and release to us in the present, in our lives, and in these situations. And I know there are many of you this morning that are struggling in all kinds of ways with different types of pain and struggle and illness and ailments that desperately need that healing power of Christ to break in. And I simply want to encourage you not to be cynical about the possibility and the willingness of God to release His healing power into your situation and into your life. Not to squeeze that out and shut that off and assume that God is somehow just some disinterested being, but to allow yourself to come face to face with the Jesus who performed this incredible miracle of healing and allow yourself to open up to the fact that Jesus wants even now, even today, to release that healing into your life. And I want to give you an opportunity in just a few moments to take a step toward that by coming to the front and having one of our elders lay a hand on you and pray for you for healing. And I know for some of you, because of backgrounds and experiences and traditions in which you may have grown up, that sounds a bit cuckoo and it sounds a bit wacky and you think it's going to result in everybody swinging from the chandeliers and rolling around on the ground making chicken noises. And that's an indictment on our theology, that we've reduced it to that. And we've hollowed it out. And in doing so, I think we've given the enemy a victory because we've turned off the tap of healing that Christ actually desires to release into our lives, into our situations. We just have this, this supernatural opposition. We don't want to know about it. And we assume that we've just got to battle on and slog it out ourselves. And friends, some of you are struggling this morning with, with stuff that is going on in your mind that you seriously need to take hold of the healing power of Jesus Christ in your minds. Some of you are struggling with, with anxiety and depression. And you need to allow others to come around you and pray fervently in Jesus' name for the healing of your mind, for your mind to be set free. Some of you are struggling with intimidation of others and timidity. You've got others in your life that you're just cowering before. And Jesus is here today as a healer 
And he's wanting to come alongside you and release that healing power into that situation and begin enabling you to take back that control that you've probably lost to another person or another group of people. Some of you are battling away with, with fear, fear of what's coming down the track in your future, fear of big change that's going on. A lot of us are very unsettled by changes and perhaps you're at an intersection. I know some of you are now with business because things aren't going well and it's forcing decisions about what's going to happen in your, in your vocational future. And God is, is, is asking you this morning not to go through that process without him and not to cut him off from coming into the middle of that and walking with you through it and enabling you to find the solution and empowering you and healing the, the fear that goes along with some of those big decisions that are hanging over your head right now like a massive gray cloud. And Jesus is here today and he's saying, let me come into the middle of that situation and let me carry that burden for you. The Bible says, cast your anxieties on Christ because he cares for you. Cast your burdens on him. Some of you this morning are struggling with moods and emotions that just need that healing balm of, of Jesus being poured in, whether it's anger and rage or lust. Whatever it is, whatever the negative moods and emotions, Jesus desires to come and begin that process of healing. Does that mean you'll never feel down again, no. But the beginnings of that transformation can start today as Christ comes into the middle of that situation and begins that incredible healing work within you. Some of you have relationships this morning that need to be healed. Maybe it's a marriage relationship and you're battling away and slogging it out, but you're really wondering how much longer you can go on for. Things are getting harder and you're drifting further and further apart and more and more distant. And as you look down the road of time. It's just not a rosy future. And rather than pushing God out of that equation and compartmentalizing your life so that you refuse to allow him entry, why not today open yourself up and be prepared to be a little bit broken and be prepared just to lower that mask enough to say, Jesus, I need you in this situation because I can't sort this out myself. I don't have the answers. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do and I lack the power to do anything about it. And God, I need you. It's where it starts is by becoming brutally honest and real with God and enabling Jesus, the healer, to come alongside us and lift us up. Some of you have friendships that have been fractured and severed and need the healing of Christ to start putting that back together. Where you may be even someone in this room or someone that comes to the second service within the church that there is just a rupture within your relationship and you've just resigned yourself to the way, the fact that that's the way it's always going to be. And yet God says it doesn't have to be that way because the new creation is here and the resurrection has happened. And so power can flow into that relationship and you can take hold of that which is offered to you and begin the process of putting that back together. You might be struggling this morning with grief and heartache and just that deep, deep pain and loss. And while God may not, is not going to restore that which has necessarily been lost, He can draw alongside you and walk with you in that grief and begin to heal the negative emotions and just the broken heart and the deep aching of your soul that's going on this morning. God is, is, is asking not to be shut out of that. We can just wear this mask of piety and religiosity and play church and and meet here and walk out again unchanged. And yet Jesus comes to us in the present right now as our healer with the grace to forgive, with the power to heal, with the willingness to intervene. And yes, he even invites us to pray for the healing of our bodies. 
and to pray for the healing of the body of another person. Whatever illness, whatever ailment, whatever condition it is. And again, Christians get nervy at this point because we think, well, what are we opening ourselves up to? And isn't that part of Act 2? And of course it is. But read James chapter 5. says that when you are sick, call those around you. It talks about elders in particular to come alongside you and pray for you that you may be healed. It's an open invitation to cry out to God for physical healing. And so often we domesticate that promise because we want to give God an escape clause because we feel like we've got to be his PR agent and we've got to make sure he doesn't come off looking bad in case he doesn't intervene and if he doesn't heal, people are going to be broken and devastated. And, and yes, we tacitly acknowledge that God has the right to do whatever he pleases, but it doesn't need to stop us crying out as children to their parent for a good gift, asking our Heavenly Father for that healing praying for his intervention, and if nothing else, groaning with our brothers and sisters for the redemption of their bodies that will finally come about on that day when Christ is revealed. We have an open invitation to do that, friends, and we need to learn to pray more fervently for healing than we probably do. We need to break off a few of those shackles and really be prepared to lay a hand on another person and ask for the healing of their body and for a wonder-working miracle of God to come into their lives. And if we do that with a clear conscience and we do that with the right motives, the Bible says, then ask. Go ahead and ask. Pray fervently. And the prayer of a righteous man or woman, the Bible says, is what? Powerful and effective. And as long as we acknowledge that Act 2 is yet to come, then we are free to take hold of all the healing that Jesus offers us in the present. <laughs> 